Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with science advisor Matt Moniz. Here to talk about the paranormal as we are each and every week. It was, uh, it was a very interesting show last week, Moniz, that you missed. We had uh, Amanda Millette here. Yep. She is a spooky New England ghoul on Instagram and spooky New England on, on TikTok. Uh, but uh, she was here talking about her belief that Lizzie Borden, or as she says she should be called, Elizabeth Borden, is innocent. Well, she was found innocent in court, so. But that doesn't mean that the court of public opinion has found her innocent. I mean, I think most people, if you ask them, did Lizzie Borden do it? You know, I think most people kind of lean toward probably, but hmm. I don't I don't make a decision either way. Well, none of us were there, so. I learned a long time ago that uh, I wasn't going to figure it out, and I don't really, to, I mean, this, I don't mean this to sound the way that it sounds. I don't care. Well, like, yeah, what are you going to do about it? Well, not, not just that. Like, it doesn't, like, the work that I did there and the investigations and the research that I did, I didn't, I was focused on that. You know, I wasn't concerned about solving the murders. I was just concerned about, you know, talking to the ghosts that were there. Hmm. And so uh, she actually had the opportunity to go and film a TV show there this week. So she couldn't talk about it last week when she was here with us because, you know, they make you sign all kinds of stuff that says yeah. that you won't say anything. But I mean, I knew that she was going. I lent her some equipment stuff to bring with her, but uh, she put it up on TikTok and the production company was in the TikTok videos with her, like, so I'm pretty sure that they knew she was doing it. I'm sure she got permission. So uh, that means we can we can say that she yeah. was there. So I'll well I don't know what's going to happen with that. I don't know um, whether it's going to be because it was a UK production company. So I don't know if it was them making something for the US market or if it's something just for the UK. But if we get any word about that, uh, we will make sure that we let you know because I'm sure people want to see it, especially getting a lot of positive audience reaction that say, "Hey, you should have her be part of the show more often." and I would love to, except she lives like three and a half hours away. Yeah, that's a commitment that... Ooh. She she was nice enough to drive down for that one, and she may drive down for some other shows too, but you know, maybe maybe we'll have her call in a few times, save her some gas money, because it's not like we're reimbursing her. I don't know if she she's aware of that. Mm. Amanda, if you're listening, you're, you're not getting gas money, so... You might get snacks. We're out of those too. Oh, God. We can give her the water bottle that I promised Balzano, the bottle of water. Oh, yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street. He ended up getting that. I actually found one day I was cleaning through my desk drawer at home and I found a couple of those Freddy Krueger keychains. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I remember I, I was sending him something else. I forget what I was sending him. But then I dropped the, the keychain in the envelope <laughs> and I was like, now yeah, I don't want to hear it anymore. I should have given him that and like a voucher for a free 12 pack of waters. Yeah. So he still mentions that both of the the water and the keychain. He still mentions those quite frequently. It's like, uh, all right, get over it, man. That was a long time ago. Uh, I think what? Two, 2009, I think it was when was that movie say came out. 14, 15 years ago. Uh, remember, remember when we used to get involved with movie releases and all that stuff? We should do that. Remember again. when movies actually used to be shown in theaters? They still do. Yeah, yeah they're still. Uh, there's still some pretty good movies that come out in the theaters. I actually like watching movies at home better. Uh, going to the theater is cool. Now that the Wareham one is closed, I, pr I probably won't go to the theater as much because it was always beneficial to just have a five-minute ride home afterwards. Yeah. But, you know, Kingston's not that far from my house either. True. And especially if I go through the woods. 
but the um, the uh, the theater experience, I, I kind of have that only reserved for the big important movies now, like that matter on the big screen and the smaller stuff. Okay, I like to watch at home, and and uh, the reason why is because I need to turn the closed captions on. <laughs> it's it's not my hearing. My hearing isn't going. I can hear everything fine, and I've had my hearing tested, and uh, you know I'm I'm doing okay in that regard. But for some reason, the the dialogue I get lost, and I don't know why. Like so, you know, I'll be hearing something, and like everybody else that would be watching that would have no problem understanding it. But I'm like, wait, what? And I have to like go back and watch it again. So, what I've started doing is just turning on the closed captioning, and it makes it a lot easier. Plus, you don't have to see. I have this bad habit of if I hear a song in a movie. You and start not, going with the song. And and I'm not, well, I'm not sure what it is. Then I have to like stop and look it up and all that stuff. If you're watching it with closed captioning on, it tells you who it is. So it's like, I don't know, this by this. I was like, okay, that, that saves me some shazamming. So I like that. But uh, yeah, so I like to turn the closed captioning on. So, But like one of the movies that I watched recently at home was Nightmare Alley. I don't know if you've heard about this movie at all. It's a remake mm, of, no. of the old 1940s movie, Nightmare Alley. But this was a, a Guillermo del Guillermo del Toro movie, if I can say that correctly. And instead of being, you know, a typical del Toro movie that, you know, you would think with a term, a title like Nightmare Alley, it would be a horror movie, but it was more of a noir film. Uh, it had a little bit of, you know, some some strange elements to it, but it was basically just a straight noir film. Uh, and I was going to go see that in the theater because I, I wanted to see it pretty badly. Well, he's well known for his visuals. Yeah, I mean it's a beautiful film too. It's like, and there's a there's a black and white cut of it too that I want to get my hands on and watch that. But the the uh, the movie itself, you know, it, it was pretty long, and so that's a that's usually a, a, a killjoy for me in the theater anyway because like I I drink the large soda and then I have to get up and go to the bathroom and I don't like to miss any part of the movie. But uh, I'm definitely glad I watched that one at home because I had to turn the subtitles on. What do you mean by a long, what What do you consider a long movie? Well, Spider-Man was like two and a half hours, but that didn't feel like it. That flew right by. Okay. This 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 movie was probably close to that. It was, it was over two hours. So people like long movies now, you know, they like to, to if they're going to go spend $17 on a movie ticket, they want to make sure that they're getting a couple of hours of entertainment out of it. I am more concerned about, you know, enjoying the film than I am what I paid for it. But that being said, oh, it was really good to have a schedule where I could go see a movie at 3.30 in the <laughs> afternoon and get that back bargain matinee price. <laughs> Especially when it comes to horror movies. Horror movies disappoint me all the time. And so I feel bad if I've actually spent money to go see them. I think I, think I went and saw The Conjuring in the theater. And that might have been the last horror film that I saw in the theater. Because... I would just prefer to watch them at home so that I can, I mean, again, those, most horror films are only an hour and a half hmm. and then I can, you know, rail against the ending and nobody's going to yell at me as I'm leaving the theater, but <laughs> it's, it's, it, they, they always have great setups. They just never deliver on the ending. And now I'm seeing all the reviews of the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie that's on Netflix. And I've seen a few people who said that it was good, and then I've seen a whole bunch of people that have said, don't even bother. So not, I'm, you know, I'm not a big fan of the slasher films anyway. I watch them, but I don't, like, run to go see them. Well, 
if they're doing a remake. I think this is a continuation. Okay. So I, I think it's like, I think it's a sequel, but I don't know if it's like a direct sequel. You know how they do that now where they'll make yeah. a sequel, but then they'll pretend other sequels didn't exist like they did with Halloween. Yeah. Which, you know, is too bad because I, I kind of like well, Halloween 3. Season of the Witch? A lot of people don't like it, but I like it. It's a good movie in and of itself, but how it fit into the whole yeah, Halloween did. genre was so just like... From, yeah. what, from what I understand, uh, the idea was that not all... They could make movies under the Halloween title that didn't have to be about Michael Myers. So it was kind of like there was going to be different stories to tell. So the idea different was that... Halloween theme. So yeah. the Halloween 4 was going to be a different movie. And it was going to be a different storyline than any of the other ones. But then they realized, like, no, we've got... And I think part of it was the external influence of looking what Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees are doing. So it's like, let's ride out our guy, because our guy was first. And so the the idea was Technically, yeah. to, to kind of stick with that storyline. And uh, so that's... So then Halloween 3 becomes the, you know, the bastard stepchild of the, uh, of the, of the series. But the, the good thing about seeing a horror movie in the theater is like nobody can ruin it for you ahead of time and tell you like, oh, wait till you see how this person kills or gets killed or wait till you see what this twist is. The the bad part of it is everybody's overreaction where, I mean, I don't, I don't watch these movies and cheer when somebody gets killed. And so when I, because when I, I saw Freddy versus Jason in the theater and like uh, people were like way too excited during that movie. And I was like, uh, I don't, I mean, I listen, I, I like it, but I don't want to like stand up and cheer. This coming from a guy that, you know, follows closely, you know, wrestling. So, but, but that's different. Nobody's dying in that. I'm not standing up and cheering somebody's death. No, but you know that it's all fake. Well, but I don't really stand up and cheer. I'm referring to the movie. I don't really stand up and cheer at wrestling either though. Like, well, I've I've been to a few. I've been dragged to a few other wrestling things. Oh yeah, people are standing up and cheering. You may not, but I, I'm yeah, saying I don't. I'm I'm more of the. I go to concerts and I don't even stand up and cheer. Oh God! People get mad at me because I go to concerts and like I don't even clap after a song. Like they're like, don't like you're not gonna clap. I'm like, what? They're just gonna play another song. I'll clap at the end of the show, but like they're just gonna play another song. Okay. Plus, how am I going to clap? I, I have a beer in each hand because I'm not well, getting up again. Uh, okay, so yeah, I'm not getting up again. I'm very, I'm very much the kind of person that once, and this is this goes for everything. It goes for movies, concerts, paranormal investigations, radio shows. Once I start, I'm I'm planted, and I don't like to get up. If I have to, I have to, but I try not to to do so. I try not to get up. What are you talking about? For ten years, you were doing the show on your feet. Yeah, but I was still doing the show. Yeah. I wasn't like. Oh, I'm going to go run down the hall during this commercial break and then come back and then go do this and then go, go well, do that. Well, it depends upon what you ate or drank the night before, but yeah. I'm, I'm also, you know, very prone to get distracted and not keep up with the things that I'm talking about. So, huh? I mean, you should see the sandwich that I'm looking at on Twitter. No, but like <laughs> that's the, that's the, that's why I, I need to keep myself focused. Uh, you know, in speaking of concerts, uh, I want to bring up something tonight because... It is, it's something that we talked about a long time ago when we started this show 
Uh, it was 2006. So in February of 2006, we were a month into the to the show. Right. Yep. So I don't think we covered it that first year, uh, but then the following year, we covered it because we had our one year anniversary party. Um, I don't remember the exact date of when that was, but it was pretty pretty close to the anniversary. I think it was maybe maybe a week or two after the actual anniversary. Yeah, I was going to say right around, but like I thought Groundhog Day comes to mind. I don't remember exactly. I mean, maybe if the EXIF data is still on the old photos, I can figure it out. But we we decided to throw a first anniversary party for ourselves, uh, mainly because we were thinking we'd be <laughs> we lucky. made it a year. <laughs> we'd be lucky if we made it two. So we said, let's just celebrate now. And uh, we went down to Knuckleheads in New Bedford, and we mm -hmm. we were able to use the bottom. Stoney was nice enough to rent it out to us, uh, to, to lend it out to us. All we had to do was pay for the bartender. But part of the reason why we got the space for free was because we were raising money that night. We yeah. had a raffle with a lot of great prizes. Uh, if you remember, the grand prize was an overnight stay for two at the Lizzie, Lizzie Borden, Borden bed House. and breakfast. So, yeah. I mean, that's a pretty good prize. But we, we had... There were some other things, too, that we were doing to raise money, and we donated all the money to the Station Nightclub Victims Fund. And I forget how much we raised. It was like a couple of hundred dollars. But then we had some other folks that said, well, that's not enough. We're just going to send you some money to include into yeah. that. So I think it ended up being like five or $600 total. Yeah. And, you know, granted, not much, but... It was something. It's what we were able to get. And it was something that was close to us because we knew people who perished in, in, in that case. And so yeah. we also yeah. we also had Dave Kane on uh, that first year. Well, you know, in 2007, I believe, uh, who son Nikki O'Neill perished in the fire. He was actually the youngest victim Correct. in the fire. And he joined us to talk about his book, 41 Signs of Hope, in which he shares all of the stories uh, that um, the, the the family kept getting signs from Nikki after he had passed on, and the number forty one was a very prominent number in his life, and that's what they kept seeing. And there was all these very interesting synchronicities. And uh, I was I was thinking about maybe having Dave come back on. I know he did his own show this morning where he talked about this, but uh, in the end, I was you know it's probably better if people just go back and listen to that episode, uh, and then you know D Dave could join us at some point and talk about things that have happened since then, because I'm sure that this hasn't stopped, but the story itself is, you know, the story of Nikki's, his story is kind of a, an uplifting, an uplifting aspect in the face of tragedy, because it was a very tragic event. It happened on February 20th, 2003. And for those unfamiliar uh, because that was a long time ago. We probably have people listening in this audience that, you know, were kids then and, and don't know what went on. But there was a local nightclub here. Uh, I was in Warwick, Rhode Island, called The Station. You'd you'd been there before, right? You'd gone to some shows there? I was supposed to be there that night. See, I had, I had never been. So yeah. I... But, yeah, I had been there before. As you know, being a song guy back right. then, I used to go to all different places. And And... I knew that I know the band Great White. I knew their one song that I was familiar with, Once Bitten, Twice Shy. And I remember being a fan of it when it came out. And I think it was like 89. Yeah. Uh, so 88, 89. Yeah. But it wasn't a song that I, you know, was like, hey, I'm going to go see this band. Uh, you know, apparently they had a wider catalog that I just wasn't familiar with. But I remember that day. 
because as, as you were saying, you know, you were supposed to be there. I'm sure you had friends that were talking to you about going. And then I remember being at the diner when, you know, Matt Costa and I were working at the diner and being there and seeing people coming in and making plans for going, Hey, I'm going to see you tonight. Right. You know? And then, you know, me being like, Oh, what's, what's tonight? Oh, we're going to that great white show. Okay. All right. Well, let me know how it is when they play that one song that everybody <laughs> recognizes, you know? And so this place, from what I can understand, is it was not a very large venue. No, not really. And they packed in more people than they were supposed to have there, which is part of, you know, the, 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 the trials and everything that happened after this. But in the course of this show, and I think it happened right at the beginning, right? It was the, it was the beginning of the show. They set off the these... The first 20 minutes of so them they, being on stage, I think, something like that. I, I think they call them flash pots, right? Yeah. And and so it's basically like a little homemade pyrotechnic thing uh, that's, you know, designed for these, it was designed for these smaller places. Most of them now have banned them as a result of this case, uh, or this tragedy. But it was, you know, just this little tiny, small pyrotechnic yeah. that, you know, you could be standing in the front row and it, and it wouldn't it wouldn't hurt you. You know, like it, it's it's it wasn't that serious of a of a pyrotechnic display. However, what happened was the foam soundproofing, or you know whatever whatever it was, the foam that was around the stage that caught fire and ignited. It was flammable. It wasn't I believe that the foam that they used wasn't rated for what they were using it for because it's flammability. And it, the whole building ended up being engulfed in flames in two minutes before right. anybody knew what was going on. So uh, it happened that quickly. And uh, at the at that particular night, the MC of the event was 94HJY's The Doctor, Doctor. Uh, Mike Gonzalez. Yep. And he, he, was, he was there. And also uh, the guitarist for Great White, also perished in the fire and from what i was reading earlier it was because they, they they probably perished because they were trying to move stuff out as this fire they're like trying to save the equipment mm. and in fact the guitarist had gotten out but then he went back in to get his guitar and that's when he got caught and and, and perished in the fire so i mean just total do you know pandemonium. who got him out the first time who guided him out no wayne Oh really? Wayne was there. Wayne, who just yeah, passed just recently. Passed recently. Which um, I he, didn't. I didn't he mention was the last one week. That was got that was getting me and the other guy, my friend Dale. Yeah. Who? Uh, the, all right. I was supposed to go with Dale and his friends to go see it, and Wayne had gotten us the tickets. But I wound up having to work at the club that night. I couldn't get a replacement sound guy for me, so Dale came up with the guys in his band and you know i i told him i can't go and the last thing i remember about that is dale and them guys waving at me and me throwing the finger to them like ha yeah you know right. yeah, thanks a lot guys and, and i'm sure that i'm sure they laughed oh yeah, yeah they were laughing like hell and then i get up the next morning and i'm turning on the tv and i i see what you know, had transpired and I had an icy chill just run through me. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about 2003. We were all still carrying beepers then, you know, we didn't have cell phones to, to have somebody call us and give us the news. And, you know, so, and, and I don't, I think I probably found out about it at the diner, but you know, it was probably something people were talking about there. Uh, and then 
it, it pretty quickly people realized that Dale was there because Dale was a regular at the yeah. diner. He he didn't really come in and eat a lot like he would sometimes on the weekends. What he was was he a car salesman? Was that what? He yeah, did? he did a couple of different things. He owned that used car place up on right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it was the one that you know was next to where there's there was a gas station there by the where the road splits to go yeah. to the to the movie. Well, what was the movie theater? Now it's all Eversource's property. But the so yeah, we he he didn't really come in and eat a lot, but he came in every day and got a coffee to go. Mm-hmm. And so you know, and we jokingly called him Rod Stewart because he always had he, his hair yeah. teased out, and you know, so uh, it was it was very shocking how quickly it happened. And and there was you know there was video that was released. I've st- I've still never watched it. I, I don't want to watch it, but it shows how quickly everything happened. And the and and the fact that everybody panicked. Yeah. And. Brushed the door and... And the staff had no idea how to safely get people out. In fact, they were telling people that they couldn't go out the stage door because that was for the band only. So here, people are trying to get out of the fire and there's a, there's a bouncer telling people you can't use this door. Well, the other thing being that, that that's where the fire started, at the stage, and it moved it forward towards the crowd. So, you know, and, and, it, counterintuitive for most people to run towards a fire. In that case, though, it's a, you know, I'm sure they were just looking for any any opening they could get. Right. And and as you know, the way that fire works, the more doors that open, the more oxygen that rushes in, the yeah. more it kind of feeds into the flames. So uh, in the end, 100 people died. 230 more people were injured. So uh, there was also a number of people who got out safely that weren't injured. Right. Um, let me see if I can, 132 people who got out. So, you know, you start doing that math and you're looking at over 500 people or just about 500 people that were in that place at one time. And I, I don't know what the capacity was, but it was less than that. Uh, and, you know, for fire code purposes. And it became the fourth deadliest nightclub fire in U.S. history and the second deadliest in New England. Now, you want to hear something a little creepy? The guy we're talking about, Dale, do you know what he was writing a book about? No. Coconut Grove. Really? He was fascinated with that case. Because I remember when I was working with him at the club, when him and his bands would come in and play, he, he was fascinated that, you know, this was a big, it was actually the largest uh death toll of a fire event in Massachusetts history at that time. And for some reason, he seemed almost obsessed with it. And he was writing a book about it at the time. And then to have him go in such a way, it was like another one of these weird little idiosyncrasies. Well, I would think, too, that, you know, if you're somebody who goes to a lot of these shows... Now, you know, yeah. and, and all the years after that, you know, obviously, you know, Coconut Grove was like 1942 or something. So 1930s. Uh, uh, nope, 1942. 19, okay. So, you, you know, I'm sure there weren't a lot of people thinking about that in, in 2003 going to shows. You know, that's not in, in the front of their mind. But now because of the station incident, I think it's kind of in, in people's mindsets now that, uh, you know, when you go into these smaller venues look and find the exits. I know I do it now. Mm. If I go to, you know, like I went to um, um, Chevalier Theater in Medford uh, to see the monkeys in October. And the first thing I do when I sit down in my seat is I look and find where the closest exits are. 
Yeah, I mean, the movie theaters still tell you at the beginning of a movie. Yeah. They're like, you can find the exits located at the front and rear of the theater. But I know that because I go to the theater and I know every movie theater has exits at the front and the rear. But each venue for, you know, shows, concerts, plays, things like that are different. And I so I made a note to say, okay, I can go this way. I can go this way. I can even go there and I can even go there. I don't have to go the way that I came in. And that's, you know, that's kind of the tendency of people, of their mindset is... I'm going to go back the way I came in because I'm familiar with that. And that's not going to, you know, a majority of the time going to these types of venues, that's not going to be the way to go. Mm -hmm. uh, mainly because you're ushered in a certain way and that certain way is definitely going to be the longest point to get to your seat. So I think that it's, it's taught that lesson at least that, you know, that you should be as safe as you can be when you go to a venue and it's also taught the venues that you need to be a lot safer. Those pyrotechnics have now been banned in pretty much every state, I believe, the, the, the flash pots. Yeah. I know that, you know, as you mentioned, I was being, uh, being a wrestling fan. I was going to a lot of pro wrestling in the early 2000s, not locals, like a lot of WWE shows mm -hmm. because I was writing the newspaper column. And as part of writing the column, I was always getting press passes to go when they would come around to Providence or to Boston. And it was a big part of the show at that time from the, from the nineties until this happened that they would have these huge pyrotechnics displays. So when Monday night raw goes live on the air, they would set off, 30 seconds worth of indoor fireworks and they had the little screamer ones that would shoot out from the ring and go out over the crowd. Like there was all kinds of stuff like that. And then when this happened, they, they stopped doing all of that. And it took a long time before they started to slowly work that back in again. Now they do have it, but they have it in such a way where it only happens on the staging area and it's far enough away from the rest of the crowd and they have suppression systems so that if something goes wrong, they can instantly put that out. So in, in, instead of, you know, the, the, the setup that they have now that they travel with, if something was to, to catch on fire, which it's all metal, so it's, they're, pretty, yeah. they're pretty safe from that happening, but if something was to happen, they can suppress that fire immediately before it would even reach the crowd. Uh, so, and they do, you know, at that time, they had this wrestling group called The Brood, and it was a, a vampire character named Gangrel, and Edge and Christian were his minions, and they would come up, and the staging, they would come up from underneath it, and there would be flames all around them, and they would come up and walk through the flames to go down to the ring. So, you know, that's a major part of their entrance, and that's something that a lot of people are looking forward to, and they had to, you know, put all that stuff on pause because of what had happened. They ended up turning the site into a memorial, mm -hmm. and that came years later. But I know that there's a lot of people that go back there, and they go there to kind of visit with their friends. I I don't I don't like taking tragedies and turning them into ghost stories. But you know we mentioned Nikki O'Neill and, and Dave Kane and that connection. But I've I've heard from other people people who were there and have gotten out that they that did get out that they have encountered the spirits of their friends mm -hmm. who who were lost there. I, I mean I don't know if that's happened to you, but it's it's definitely happened to a few other people that I know that were there. I've only been back there once, uh, and this is after they turned it into a memorial. 
but I know several people that have been there and they're not really ghost hunters per se. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there's a person that I I know her, her son's, uh, her son's father was killed there. And, and uh, anyway, she's been there and she's done recordings and, there are EVPs, and I know that several people that have gone there specifically to get EVPs. And this isn't for, you know, to be brought out into, you know, right. this is just hoping to have... For their have own closure, yeah. Yeah. And I've heard a couple, and they are some of the ones that have gotten chills down my spine. You know, we, I remember back in the, in, in the early days of the show, somebody had reached out to you and I'm sure time has passed enough that we can talk about it, but somebody had reached out to you and said, Hey, if you guys want to come and investigate ground zero in New York, I can get yeah. you in there. Yeah. And we talked about it and we both said like, no way, no, <laughs> no way. Not only, I mean, it'd be one thing if we did it, you know, just for ourselves and, you know, right. but if anybody had ever found out that we did it. You know, there would have been been a lot of backlash. Even if we had our own personal reasons for wanting to go and do it, you know, that would have been something that was seen as exploitative. And I think it was the same thing would be happening if people were, obviously what you're talking about is somebody's own personal closure. I'm not going to judge that at all. But if if somebody showed up, if if a paranormal TV show decided to go film there, you know, I think that would be, that would be a, 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 something that would be, First of all, tacky, it would be in bad taste. I would find it personally offensive, yes. But I also, you know, I also think that there would be a backlash beyond the people that knew people who perished in that fire. I think, like, just the audience watching it in middle America would say, oh, gee, this this feels slimy. Yeah, that's, yeah. But then it does bring up a a good question, and it's something that I want to talk about here tonight. We can throw throw up on the phone lines for it, 508-996-0500. Some people feel that what we do overall is slimy. Some people feel that there is no such thing as enough time has passed. And that, you know, there's a distance from these people when they were alive or a distance from the families that might have known these people that we are calling the ghosts of, of now. And that we exploit these tragedies for... Whatever our purposes, you know, if it's going to be somebody going and filming a TV show, writing a book, coming on the radio and talking about it, that we are exploiting these particular places in order to further ourselves based on their demise, their tragic circumstances, whatever it may be. If you're going to, to learn and understand you know, about what's happening and what could potentially be beyond, like as a researcher, kind of like what I'm doing when I, I, because I'm looking to understand. That's one thing. If you're going there to catch stuff, to put it out to the masses for ratings, that, it's so, all in your intent, I guess, would be the, would be the point. And the execution, too. Yeah. I mean, the, the debate, had kind of subsided a bit for a while because I think that, I think, first of all, I think TV got kind of savvy to some of this and went to places where, I don't want to say that the, 
the people that knew the the ghosts, you know, the people who were there alive would have no recourse. I mean, they try to go to older places. Yeah. They try not to hit on recent tragedy. Now, I know Ghost Adventures does. They did the Elisa Lamb yeah. uh, case. You know, the, the, they, they do hit some more recent stuff. But for the most part, you know, they've tried to go for older historical things. And then they've also tried to make sure they take a tact where they're always respectful to what that is. So it kind of subsided a little bit. But now what's brought that debate back up is TikTok. Because you have people making these videos, whether they go to the location or they don't, you know, sometimes they just do it as like a green screen video, but they say, well, you're just, you're just utilizing these deaths and tragedies and murders and everything that happens just to get yourself a lot of views. And in a way it's right. I mean, Amanda was here last week. She's, you know, a very big TikTok personality and she's explaining like, this is the way to reach the next generation to tell, tell these stories that they're not even bothering. They're not even going on YouTube and looking for it. They're just scrolling through TikTok anyway. And so why not hit them with some, some history and some information as opposed to just, you know, somebody doing some kind of dance challenge. So I understand, I understand that aspect of it, but I also think that unless you've, You've immersed yourself into, because most of the people making those videos don't even know that there are other videos out there about it. They think they're the first people to ever find out about this case. Mm. And you're not putting it out there with the same amount of work and research that the, that the other people have done. Like I've seen her Lizzie Borden book collection, Amanda's. I know how much she's read up on the case. But other people are just making videos because, you know, they, they read an article online and they're like, oh my God, guys, let me tell you about this article I just read. So it's it's not it's not being done with the same respect in that regard. Uh, let's let's take a call here. 508-996-0500. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. Hello. Hey, Matt. Hey, Tim. John in New Bedford. Hey, John. What's up, John? Um, I'm sure there's hundreds of stories like mine, but uh, my... My, my dad had actually won tickets to see Great White at the station the previous year. We were there the year before. Jeff Charles was emceeing that night. And when 2003 came around, my dad called me up and said, Hey, you want to go to the station? The show is tonight. And I said, Nope, I got to study. <laughs> I have an exam coming up. I can't screw up. I have to, I have to pass this. I can't go. And he was giving me grief for it. Because, oh, when I was your age, I used to go to shows all the time, blah, blah, whatever. And uh, sure enough, like around 11 o'clock, 11.30 or so, my phone rings. And he said, turn the TV on right now. And they were, they were, showing, um, they were showing the fire. Um, getting back to what you were saying about um, going to these places and is it exploitative? It reminded me of something I just saw on Facebook um, a couple of couple of days ago. Someone asked, "When does when does grave robbing become archaeology?" And it was it was like a, a screen cap from Twitter or something. This discussion, and uh, someone said, "Well, as an archaeologist, about 50 years, so maybe it's maybe it's too soon. Maybe uh, you know, same thing with Ground Zero. I don't know if that'll ever be not too soon." But, uh, you know, I wonder what what time has to pass before, you know, it's, it's no longer too soon for stuff like this. 
So could the Mopoli be too soon? <laughs> no, um, it's a serious question. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I try to look at it like this. You know, and, and we've encountered, Moniz and I for sure have encountered places where we've talked to the people in charge of it and they've told us, it's okay to talk about this ghost, this ghost, this ghost. Don't talk, talk about, about this the, one if this yeah. one pops up because yeah. it was w way too recent and there's relatives that are still around. I, the way I look at it is if there's still people around that would prefer that we don't or if there's still if there still might be living relatives, we try to be sensitive of that. I mean, if you're if you're a fourth generation descendant of the Borden family, like that's too far removed for me to really. And plus, that's a huge case. So that's probably yeah. a bad example. But, you know, if you're, you know, the third cousin of somebody like uh, it's not an emotional and. Again, I can never tell somebody else how to feel, but I'm just going to assume there's not a big emotional connection there for you. Uh, I know that when you know we talk about Edaville, we have to be very careful talking about the Ellis family because the Ellis descendants don't like us talking about their ghosts. And now it's gotten to the point where, well, it's it's out there and it's public. And I understand that you don't like that, but also like you're removed enough from the situation that I. I I'll I'll defend my right to kind of talk about that story. So you're talking any case within living memory. I, I try to look at it that way, but then at the same time, I go back to what Jeff Belanger used to say in our stage show that we used to do. He would talk about the Mexican tradition of the dying three deaths, that the first death you die is when your physical body dies, and yeah. the second death is when, you know, everybody that you ever knew dies, and then the third death is when somebody speaks your name for the very last, last time. time. So by us doing these things and talking about these ghosts, we are not letting them die. We are keeping their memories alive. And I think we're, 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 it's more of a tribute than it is an exploitation. Well, think about the uh, Egyptians. The whole point of keeping somebody alive was their name in a cartouche and they had followers that would continuously speak their name so they would perpetually live. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of where I come down on it, John. I don't know how, how you feel about that. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes sense, and uh, I, I I agree with you guys. Where, um, yeah, I mean, living the living memory thing. If if it's going to be something that's upsetting the people that are, you know, still walking around, it's probably best to avoid that. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for the call. All right. Take it easy. 508-996-0500 if you would like to call in. I mean, I think that that case that I was referencing before, I believe that the, the, the person who passes, the parents are still alive. And so it's the parents that have asked not to, to talk yeah. about that. So maybe, you know, when the parents are no longer with us, it might be a different story. But I would still feel like there's a difference between going and looking for Lizzie Borden or Elizabeth Borden. There's a difference between going and looking for that spirit where... It's it's a known name. It's a story that everybody knows. It's 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 a legend around a true story, and then, you know, just going and talking to some random person uh, whose ghost is still seen somewhere. You know, there's well the uh, the, the notoriety the notoriety does play a factor because the notoriety is something that came out of our hands. It happened outside of us. The problem is, is then when you go and you do these unknown cases and you make those ghosts famous you are now thrusting that notoriety upon them all right i get a number of cases throughout the year where i'm being called to a place and the place is uh 
haunted by, according to the people that lived there, this is old Uncle Chester, whose house this used to be, and, mm-hmm. you know, they the family are saying, I know it's this person. So if you're invited to go Yeah, look, that's a different story. Right. I mean, they... they obviously that's, uh, you know, a, a private case and you're going to ask them permission before you talk right. about it. So if they give you permission, they understand that you're putting this person out there. Uh, the problem becomes, you know, when they're no longer associated with the property and then you're going there because somebody else is there. Right. And this this happens so often. So where buyer beware in that case because it's already established. No, but no, no, not necessarily. What happens is somebody sells a home yeah. Let's just say your grandfather passes away and, and uh, you know, the, the, the family decides to sell the house and it's 25 years after your grandfather died. Some person lives in that house now and calls up the local paranormal team and says, there's something going on in my house. The team comes, the team investigates a couple of times. They seem to think that there's something going on as well. They start going back and researching the history of the house. They go down to town hall, they go through the records, they come up with your grandfather being the person that owned that house. It says in there, oh, he died at home. So they just start making the assumption then that the ghost that is in that house or whatever the activity is that's in that house, uh, that if it is truly paranormal, it must be your grandfather because your grandfather lived in that house for 50 years and he died there. So they then start going into that investigation with that confirmation bias of thinking it is your grandfather and trying to communicate with him, even though they have no reason to think that. Uh, But now your grandfather has become the basis of the investigation. Now they get some really phenomenal activity and they end up uh, getting contacted by a television show and they say, oh, you guys have any really good clips? Oh, well, actually, we got this very interesting whatever. And so they send it to the production company. The production company says, come on our story and come on our show and tell your story. So you go and you film with them telling, they have you telling the story. And then they hire some actors to reenact the telling of your story. And then the next thing you know, your grandfather with no real kind of evidence to prove that that's who it is, is now this ghost at this particular location. Then it becomes famous. Then people start driving by the house. Then people are constantly going up to the house and being like, is the grandfather's ghost here? So you have this very quickly, this can spin out of control with no real actual factual reason for thinking that that's the case. You're speaking kind of like what happened at the Conjuring House in a sense. Sure. I mean, Bathsheba certainly was maligned for that very reason. Yeah. Uh, That was, you know, some shoddy historical research combined with some shoddy mediumship. And next thing you know, this this woman's maligned for, I I don't want to say for, you know, the entire time that people have known about. It's really only been the time that people have known about the Conjuring case. Right. Uh, But still, I mean, that's that's. That's unfair. It's unfair to her. It's unfair to her descendants. The other part of it is, you know, there's 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 a song by the great Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. It's called Fanfare for the Common Man. And it's a very good, you know, it's a very good little tune. But also, I think about that a lot in some of the ghosts that we publicize. That in a lot of cases, it is fanfare for the common man. It's not, it's a person whose name might not have been known, 
beyond their own friends and family, if not for this. So there's, there's that side of it of you are, I don't want to say that that has to be a person's, you know, worth is how many people know who you are, but it's, it's something to consider that you are putting somebody on a pedestal to some degree and you're giving them some notoriety when they might have just been a regular common person, but now, now they're the ghost of this place. And now people tell that story. And in, in some cases, that might be a good thing for their descendants. They might enjoy that part of it. The computer keeps firing stuff off. Okay. I apologize for that. I've cleared everything out, but it just keeps adding stuff in. So I uh, I will find out how to fix that. Now that I'm here every day, like, well, I'm, I've <laughs> yeah. been here every day for years, but now that I'm here on the air every day, like I'm starting to learn the system a little bit better and then I can kind of make some adjustments instead of just looking here and being like, uh, I think I'll check this. I think I'll check that, which is basically how I function since we put this system in. Now, will your new position allow you to ask the engineer to update the computer and some I don't, of the I other don't, stuff? I don't want to. It was a valid question. Yeah, I don't I don't want to bring the video back. No, it's not so much the video. Well, what computer then? Well, this this thing no, is, this is uh, No, this is user error. Oh, this, okay. is, this is totally my fault. Okay. No, this is No, cuz remember when there was a computer. Yeah, yeah, no, this this system's brand new. Okay. This is this is all great. This is all like state of the art stuff. We're, we're ahead of the curve now okay. when it comes to all this stuff. I just don't know how to use it. So this is totally my fault. Totally user error. But um, no, I, I will learn better and I will learn how to kind of avoid having stuff fire off on the street. See, the people listening on the radio, they don't hear it because I yeah. can control the radio here with the live board. But it goes out over the stream. So people are listening to the stream saying like, why is it firing off the Alexa promo? Well, that's because Tim doesn't know how to keep it from doing that. <laughs> but that'll be the question that I ask Monday morning. Jason, if you're listening, that's going to be the first thing I bother you about, which I bother him nonstop about <laughs> things all the time. And I'm like, well, this will actually benefit Spooky South Coast too. Glad that I asked this question. So that'll be the first thing that I ask Monday. Uh, but if, by the way, if you are not listening to the Tim Weisberg show, it airs Monday through Friday, beginning at 9 a.m., 9 to noon. And uh, we talk about all kinds of local issues. It's not a paranormal show. But because Monday is President's Day, right? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. So because it's Tuesday's President's Day. Washington's birthday, I think. Or I, I didn't like even that. get him anything. Um, I had a portrait made of him. It's in my pocket. Ah. But the, I think I will talk a little bit of paranormal stuff because I think I might discuss a little bit of the presidential paranormal. So we can talk a little bit about that on Monday. Uh, when we, when we discuss President's Day, I'll, I'll maybe share a couple of ghost stories and you know what maybe we can even talk about some of it when we come back too because there's there's one thing that i probably won't get too deep into that i'd like to talk to you about uh related to ufos and the presidency ufos in washington dc so we can talk about that we can also take more of your phone calls at 508-996-0500 if you would like to call in if you want to send us an email spooky crew at spooky if you want to follow along with the discussion on twitter use the hashtag spooky live uh, so many different ways that uh what, what else more do you need so we'll take a break and then we'll return with more spooky south coast right here on wbsm
hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with science advisor Matt Moniz. And Moniz, I, I misspoke in the first hour. I have to issue a correction on okay. something that I said. I said that I, I don't go to see horror movies in the theater. Uh, there is a horror movie that I'll probably go see in the theater if I can find one around here that's showing it. I want to see, I think it's called Studio 666. Have you seen any ads for this? No. The Foo Fighters made a horror movie, and it looks hilarious. If you find tickets, take me with you. I will let you know. It's a it's a it's a horror comedy, uh, and it just it. I mean, I love the Foo Fighters. I love everything they do. I think Dave Grohl's hilarious. Yeah, I like their music, and this this looks very very good. It looks like it. You know, it's it's you know kind of in the vein of uh, Rocky of a, Horror, uh, more like a like an Evil Dead. You know, so yeah, the, that'll work. The The premise of it is that they, they go to record in the studio and the studio is like haunted and there's like demons in the studio and stuff like that. And uh, Dave Grohl gets possessed and then starts killing the rest of the band. So hmm. works for me. Hmm. Did you know that Dave Grohl once played the devil in a film? No. He, he was from, I understand he was Satan in the, well, I don't know if it was in the movie, but definitely in, uh, in the video for one of the Tenacious D songs, he played he played Satan. Oh, in a music video. But then they made the movie The Pick of Destiny. I don't yeah, know if the, I I don't know if the video was from the movie. I'm trying to remember which song it was, and I don't remember. I think it I think it was Tribute. You know, it's not the greatest song in the yeah, world. It's yeah, just a tribute. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I had mentioned in the first hour toward the end there that... On Monday's edition of the Tim Weisberg Show, again, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to noon. You can listen on WBSM, 1420 a.m., 99.5 FM, WBSM.com, and the WBSM app. If you miss any editions of the program, you can check out the podcast on WBSM.com, the WBSM app, and wherever podcasts are found, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. So you have no excuse not to be listening. But I had mentioned that uh, on Monday we might kick around some of the presidential paranormal topics. But I want to ask you, because you've looked into UFOs for a long time, you've looked into abductions for a long time specifically, and I want to relate that back to the story, the legend that we are told. Now, I'm going to present it to you the way that I present it in my presidential paranormal lecture. You can tell me how much of this is is what your research or what you've you've heard as well. But from my understanding... At some point uh, during World War II, the U.S. and British forces, you know, the leadership were approached by extraterrestrial beings. And they ended up having a meeting that included, well, it was basically a meeting between the extraterrestrials, um, FDR, and Winston Churchill. And in this meeting, the... Aliens proposed to the two leaders, if you give us permission to abduct your people, we will give you the technology that you need to defeat the Axis powers. And they said to them, we only want 5,000 of your people. And Winston Churchill said, you know what? 5,000, that's a good deal. I'll take it. And FDR said, nope, I can't take it. No American citizens are going to be intentionally abducted. We'll just win the war ourselves. All, uh, you know, obviously we know how World War II shook out. I don't think that it was any kind of British 
secret uh, technology that we were utilizing. But uh, anyway, from the way the story is told, the aliens did not abduct 5,000 people as agreed upon. They abducted 50,000. And Churchill was upset and FDR was like, well, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have agreed to it. Actually, I think Truman was probably thrown in his face by then. But anyway, Mm. the, you know, flash forward to the Eisenhower era and Eisenhower finds out about this plan, about this, this proposal. And again, they revisit the same plan and he begins allowing begrudgingly, but still allowing them to abduct U.S. citizens in exchange for certain technologies. And that when he left office, if you remember, what did he warn the American people about? Beware the military-industrial complex. But what he was really saying was beware of where they were getting Mm. the technologies that they were developing. Now, this was all kind of fictionalized, too, in the uh, the recent season of American Horror Story, which... I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it either. I thought that Neil McD- Neil is it McDonough? Yeah, Neil McDonough. He's he's a Hyannis guy, uh, and he played um, Eisenhower, and I thought he did a really good job. But they, you know, they played it up that Mamie Eisenhower was abducted and taken over by these aliens, and that she was the one having an affair with Valiant Thor, and. Uh, there was a place where they were keeping humans and using them for hybrid babies and all kinds of stuff like that. You know, spoiler alerts if you haven't watched it already. But in actuality, we've we've discussed this here on the show before because we had Laura Magdalene Eisenhower, who claims to be the granddaughter, great granddaughter of Eisenhower, of Dwight Eisenhower, and she claims that she was part of the secret space program. That there was an exchange of astronauts. We were sending some of our people to their planet, and they were sending some of their, I, I guess we'll say people, to our planet. Mars in particular is what was claimed. Yeah. So in, in all of the work that you've done, especially with abductees, do you think that it's plausible that there was some kind of agreement, that there was some kind of, um, I don't want to say plan, but some kind of proposal that was brought forth that was accepted and that this was that, that that these that these abductions are in some way sanctioned okay let me go back from where you first started the world war ii agreement that you're talking about is a recent thing and if you go back and listen and read other stuff i think that that part of things was not, you know, that, I think that's a creation. I don't think that is a, a, a historical uh, event or accurate. I do know for a fact that the Holloman Air Force Base encounter with Eisenhower did happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. And from reading legend and lore about what happened there. Yeah, that's where this first agreement was proposed. And from my understanding from what was written by people that alleged to have been there at that at that meeting and things like that and having been privy to 
documents, paperwork, and film footage of the of the event that there was some sort of agreement made. Now, bear in mind that abductions have been going on long before we were even a country, all, all right, across so the and, planet. And if so. that's the case, then what what did the what did the aliens have to gain by entering into some kind of an agreement like that? Less well. <laughs> Put it this way: they, if they, you, they had the upper hand in this. No oh, they had the upper hand, but you know, if you if you can make an agreement with the mosquitoes and the flies to leave you alone while you go, you know, True. out with Good a point. stroll, you know, hey, it's better than trying to find the right type of, you know, deep woods off equivalent. It's much easier if you can make the. In other words, let's let's put the honey over here, and they'll go over that while I go over, you know, poking at the anthill. So. If if this agreement did, and you know what, just to point out too, um, Jackie Gleason was a huge UFO buff. Uh, he oh, was yeah. very interested in the topic. He actually had a home that he designed. You know, the property was designed to look like UFOs. Yeah, uh, went for went up for sale a few years ago. Florida, uh, I think upstate New York. Okay. But so the so houses in Connecticut, Florida, New York. Th I think this one California. was. I I, I want to say it was maybe in the Albany area. I'll have to go back and see if I can find the story. Okay. But so he was very much into the topic, and he had friendships and and he had meetings with both Eisenhower and Nixon. Correct. Where they shared with him, you know, information about about ufos and aliens so well allegedly uh nixon picked him up at his house in miami and brought him to a particular base out there and showed him things so if if this is happening i almost kind of feel like the uh, i don't want to say the the disinformation because that's not really accurate but the the stigmas that were put on uh, people who claimed to have been abducted, I can see why that that would have to happen because those people were now uh, putting that kind of a program in jeopardy by speaking out. So having a, a campaign of, you know, a smear campaign toward those people, getting them to look like they're crazy there's there's a value in that because before, you know, I would wonder what what's like what would have what would somebody have to gain by trying to make somebody look like a fool for claiming that they were an abductee. I mean, if people were if people were treating them that way, it was just human instinct. I didn't think it was an intentional and, thing. To, and if it was to, to quiet them down. And here, look at it this way, and I have a unique perspective on this. Why would somebody want to claim it? Knowing full well, well this is, course. you know, so. But, but by the same token, why would somebody want to dispel what they were saying? If if somebody's going right. to say something that you think is totally insane, why, you're not going to try to stop them from saying right. it. Right. And why would you need to pay in that claim? Uh, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, you don't. This is already crazy and, and to start with. Yeah, and I tend to ignore crazy. Rather than most people, you usually do. Rather than try to uh, explain it away or discredit the person, I'm just like, right. yeah, no, you're. I'm just going to walk away from this. I'm not getting involved in this. Whereas 
these people, you know, in is you've had happen to you that they are, you know, having their homes broken into, they're having personal documents taken from them, they're threatened at gunpoint. They're turning out, you know, they're 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 No, uh, I've actually had guns pointed right, at no. me. And so yeah. There's um there's cases where people have claimed that they have been accused of and convicted of crimes that they had nothing to do with. Correct. I mean, so there's 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 a a, a program in place and there's a and in some a, cases, a campaign in place to to try to make these people look like less incredible. And in some cases, they've actually been permanently silenced. I know of a handful that are friends of mine that are now buried. So if that's if that's happening, then that thing that is happening has to be about protecting something. Correct. Um, just the stories unto themselves don't seem like enough to to make it worth that risk. But yet we get the, you know, we get these reports that come out and it's like, yeah, there's there's weird stuff in the sky, but hey, don't we don't know anything about it. Right. Like, you know all that we know now. Right. And you, you and I both know, it's like, if you know that you're admitting this far, you know that they know far more than what they're talking about. That's the preliminary report. That's what they said. It was a yeah. preliminary report, but here it is, you know, all this time later, we still haven't seen anything more than that preliminary report. And that's all you're going to see. And didn't I tell you that? Well, I, I think I think more stuff will come out, but I don't think uh, it's going to be anything. It's not going to be any more yeah. different than what you've already It won't done. be anything earth shattering, uh, but I think you'll get... You'll, no kaboom. What we'll get is we'll, we'll get more detailed versions of what they've put out. Yeah. So you're going to get the whole complete file on the thing that they said. We're just not sure what it was. Yeah. But the um, the, the the aspect. See, I'm fine, with, and I, I don't like the fact that if it was happening and we had it kept from us, okay, like that sucks. We don't want that to happen. But I'm also not like completely up in arms about it if they feel like that was a strategic advantage in a time of the Cold War to not let that information be out there. Uh, so if you were going to work with the aliens to get this technology that will help keep the peace and keep us from blowing ourselves up fine i'll find out about it later when somebody writes a book about it or somebody does the research or what have you but if there's uh if they're taking human beings and that's part of it well then that's a different story that's something that i i definitely want to know about and that's something that i, I feel like if everything was to ever come out that's going to be the part that people are the most upset about. Well, you know, our government takes people, our own people, to right. do things, and too. we don't we don't like it when we find out about it when it's, when when it leaks out. So it's only going to be that much worse if it turns out that here it is. First of all, probably what would be the single greatest thing to ever happen to mankind, and you didn't tell us about that. But now on top of that, you're also basically feeding us to them as well. I mean, not literally feeding because they're not eating us, but, you know, you're uh, you're supplying them. Yeah, you keep believing that. Well, I mean, they're, I'm talking about the ones who get returned. Okay. They didn't get eaten if they got returned. Right. Um, but the, 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 the secrecy in that regard, I think the quieter you are about it, the more, uh, you know, if there's going to be that vacuum of it, Stories are going to be created to fill that vacuum, and oh, and there's been plenty of stories created. And I assure and, you, and I believe that you know a lot of the people who I mean, I, I, we don't talk to a lot of them here, 
just because we've we've lagged behind a bit in it. But I've had the opportunity to talk to some abductees on on the Midnight Society show, and you know I can't do a three hour interview with somebody and have them tell this whole story and come away with it being like that person is completely fabricating all of this. Like at the end of three hours. The the most I can say from a skeptical point of view is that person really believes everything that they just said. Right. But more, I lean more toward the side of it, what this person went through seems to have been a legitimate thing. And I don't know how far I'm willing to go down the path of what it really was, but I will say that it was a real experience for them. Like, you know, we had him here on the show and I had him on midnight side, Calvin Parker. Yeah. You can't listen to his story and the information that he says and be like, well, here's a guy who's just, you know, making it up and trying to cash in. Well, the thing is, I mean, when you get an individual story, Hey, they came, they took me in and there's nobody else there. You know, it's a story that somebody's saying somebody like Calvin, he, he, he wasn't, just him it was with somebody else and there were like i think up to now i think 10 different witnesses watching it happen oh, and, so and not only that there was a, a number of incidents that happened across the country at least the eastern half of the country yeah that very same night yeah so uh you look at and so then there's i don't know how familiar you are with the case of jim wittenberger who i've had him on i twice. know i know who he is i i know a bit bit of his case no he, he shared in depth um he, he has a tendency to repeat himself no. and so as he was telling the stories you know they never altered he is he, he's repeating it again and again i had him on and then i had him on like two weeks later to because he said there was stuff that he didn't get to and he's out of that second three hours he spent the first like two hours kind of repeating himself right uh but then he really got into some mind blowing stuff in the, in the third hour, but he never changed the story. And then I, he sent a copy of his book to me that's in the works. And I was looking through that and it's like the exact same thing. I mean, when somebody is consistent with their story, I tend to believe it more. The I've, I've learned over the time, over time to pick up when I think some pick up on some of the clues of when I think somebody is making stuff up. And it's usually based because I try not to overreact to things. Some radio hosts would hear a story about, you know, you're telling me about what happened to you and I'm listening to you tell the story and I'd say, oh, wow, that oh, one. my God, like, that's amazing. That's incredible. And, like, I do that sometimes if I really feel that way about the information that I'm getting. But, like, I would never feign that right. um, that reaction because I, I try to keep an even keel and let them tell their story because if you start to get too excited – if you feel like the person might be playing into that excitement, it could lead to embellishment and then, yeah, and, I get where you're going. But that same demeanor of not getting too excited could also lead to people embellishing too, because you don't sound impressed. So, oh, you weren't, you weren't impressed when I told you that, you know, the aliens took me from the, from the Kmart bathroom. Oh, well, uh, and then, uh, when they took me from the Kmart bathroom, uh, they also abducted the person who was, uh, you know, working in the fitting room and they, that person like, and you know, you can, you can kind of hear where they're kind yeah. of adding things in 
And instead, you hear the consistency of the story. And I, I, if I'm if I'm a little bit unsure about somebody, or if the story itself is too fantastical, I'll go and try and find some of the other appearances that person's made and tune in and see. So we have this guy on, and I'm, I'm trying to think of his name, um, and it'll pop into my head. Uh, it was Rodriguez, Tony Rodriguez, because I asked him if it's Rodericks like it is here. Uh, but so Tony Rodriguez claims he was abducted when he was 10 years old and he was put into service for 20 years and then returned to himself as a, as a 10 year old boy. And the story is so fantastical that he, he lived and worked on Mars. He had an entire life for 20 years on Mars. And the story was just that. And as I'm looking through the notes about who he is and all the, you know, the stuff to talk about. I'm thinking to myself, this guy just must be totally nuts because this just sounds like science fiction. It sounds like total recall, you know, like it just sounds like somebody made up a story. I I know the case you're talking about. And then I started listening to him on some other podcasts and I started hearing, I'm like, I, I don't think this guy's making it up anymore. Like, I think that he's sincere and, and I'm listening and I'm like, get, and so when I had him on and I'm talking to him, I specifically pointed out that, hey, I didn't think that you were legitimate. I thought I, I questioned the story. It sounded too fantastical. And so I decided to go listen to some other appearances. And the more I listened to it and I listened to the consistency in the detail of your story, you know, it, even the best science fiction author in the world, if they wrote an entire book claiming it to be true. I'll run Hubbard. And then they put it out there. Like they're not going to remember all of those little bits and pieces as much as somebody who actually went through it and experienced it and has it as a very profound memory. So a storyteller will remember the story, but they might not remember all the details all the time. You know, we do the stage show mm-hmm. telling these ghost stories. And I know like a lot of times I, I come off after telling one of the stories, I come off stage and I'm like, Oh, I forgot that line or oh, I forgot to hit that cue. Whereas when somebody has actually lived it and experienced it and gone through it, you know, think of, think of, uh, you know, a, a car crash that you might've been in or, you know, the, the best moment or the worst moment of your life. You're going to remember every single detail. You're going to remember what the, what smells were in the room. You're going to remember, you know, how the air felt on your skin. Like it, it, it's vibrant to you. Yep. And that's what these stories sound like when people are sharing them. Same, you know what? Same thing. With another thing that I was very, very unsure of that, I, well, I shouldn't say I was unsure of, I 100% believe that it was not true until I started talking to people who have these claims. And that is people who have had near death experiences. experiences. I was, oh, yeah. I was totally convinced like most people that are skeptical of them. Well, of course you saw the light. That was the light of them, you know, shining the light down on you trying to resurrect you in the on the hospital bed and all that stuff and you know oh that tunnel is just your you were your consciousness kind of fading out but they caught you right before it was gone for good and you know I tried to explain away everything that I could but then I start to hear what these people experienced and it's it's not that they're just regurgitating a story they've heard somebody else tell there's there's a difference in every story and you know what got me about them is it wasn't even the detail. It wasn't even the the experience that they were describing. It was that every person that I've talked to who has had a near-death experience has come out of it as a better person. 
and has done good things with this celebrity, for lack of a better term, this recognition. So to me, the way I look at it is even if it wasn't true, it's still doing some good as a result of it. But I just, I can't dismiss it offhand like I used to because it's just so intense. It's so detailed. And the people who are telling these stories probably, again, I don't mean to like cast a wide net and make assumptions about everybody, but like if you told them, hey, write a, write a story about anything you want, write a story. I don't think they would write a story as good as a story that they're telling. It's funny that you talk about near-death experiences because back when I was younger, just out of, you know, uh, my old man owned a um, delivery business here in New Bedford. And one of the things I used to have to do was deliver prescriptions. <clears throat> and I used to have to deliver to a lot of these elderly parks and homes and things like that. So this was the 80s. Yeah. And you being you, I just want to make sure all the bottles showed up full, right? Yes. Okay, okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Um, but I would be talking to these elderly people, and they got to be uh, interested in the things I was doing. I was telling them about, you know, all of the paranormal things as well. And a lot of them would share with me their near-death experiences from being, you know, already at the door in a certain sense. And the, the ones that got me the most, that showed the most turnaround, you know, you get the common stories, everybody, the, you know, the lights and meeting my family members mm. and meeting whatever. Which which you would expect to be your right. what would happen to your brain if you were dying. Right. And, you know, some sort of glowing religious figure in talking to them. The ones that really changed our lives were the ones that went somewhere else. And that those were the people that were the most deeply affected, going down into what, what would best be described as hell. And they all, without question and without variation, all told the same story. Okay, and if you go back and look at religious history uh, you know uh, hell is always taught as being this pit of fire you know and things like that incorrect at least according to these people that have actually been there hell isn't you know this hot burning lake of fire it's actually a cold empty desolate dark place and if you go back and look at the terms, hell is supposed to be the removal from the light of God. God is ever everlasting light and warmth. So it would make sense that hell is actually cold because you're so far removed from it. Well, John Tenney, who he didn't have a near-death experience. He had a death experience. He died. Okay. And yeah. uh, and and they were able to. He had he had a heart attack at 16 years old, and they were able to bring him back. But that's how he describes it. He said it was it was just a, a nothingness, a void. Yeah. And it was the most it was the most desolate thing he'd ever experienced. It was it was the worst thing he'd ever experienced. Uh, and he said that he you know he would never want to have to go to that place again. And it it. It affected him and it changed, you know, he, yeah. he 
changed his life as a result of it. And I think that that is probably, uh, it, it probably happens more often than people understand, but because it doesn't fit the description of a near death experience, people mm. don't think to, to bring that up and talk about it. Uh, when it does happen, they don't, they're not thinking to themselves, Oh, I should tell everybody about what happened to me. They just think, Oh, I died. And like, that's what they expect death to be. Uh, there was one person that we had here on the show. I can't remember her name, but we talked to her on, on Spooky, where she had described when she went, when she had her near-death experience, she went somewhere. And even though she was only, you know, technically dead here for a couple of seconds, she spent a long time in this place where she was. And in that place that she was, she did, you know, she was able to describe the landscape. She was able to describe the beings that she encountered. She was able to recount the lessons that they were teaching her as a result of it. And I mean, that's, that's a lot of detail. If you just want to tell a near death experience story and you're just going to make it up, you don't have to go to the level of detail that some of these people have gone through. And so to me, I just look at that and I say, well, I have to give that some credence uh, I still don't necessarily believe that they went somewhere uh, that, you know, this could have just been something that was implanted into their consciousness. But and and some of them even say that some of them say it wasn't a place. It was a it was a concept. Um, but then and then another thing, by the way, just, you know, because I thought of this as, as we were talking, another thing that I never believed in. Still don't 100% believe in, but I have to kind of scratch my head at some of the stories that I've heard, was reincarnation. Oh, I I got a book for you. I didn't buy into it at all. And then we did reincarnation week on Midnight Society and hearing the level of detail, mm-hmm. verifiable things that were coming through. I don't know. I don't know that I'm still necessarily ready to believe that it's reincarnation per se but there's something going on especially with children oh, yeah. yeah where they're picking up and 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 and, and getting the memories of, of somebody that had lived before i've got a book for you it's called search of Bridie murphy mm-hmm. have you heard of it i've heard of it i haven't yeah. read, it. read it the the there was a story that i that we covered for that reincarnation week there was a number of stories where it was a fighter pilot shot down. World War Two, usually. Yeah. Uh, and and I I I wonder if there isn't something about that particular time period, that particular war, you know, where this might have happened, what the mindset might have been. Well, bear in mind that was a, a large degree of souls lost during sure. that time period. So, but I wouldn't be surprised, especially since. They seem to be, and I'll have to go back and, and check because I don't know if this is true or if it's just the way my mind is kind of trying to remember it, but it seems to be English pilots, not American pilots, that I'm that, that they seem to be the reincarnations of. So I, I, my thought process is, was there some kind of organization, society, practice happening where... These soldiers were these these fighter pilots were saying we're gonna we're gonna reincarnate ourselves like we we know that there's a chance that we could go up there and die so we're going to pr- 
practice this this uh, this art to be able to be reincarnated and, and to live again. One of the most detailed uh, accounts, if you're talking from World War II reincarnation, a uh, young boy uh, came up with the guy's name, rank, and the name of the submarine he was on that went down, and they found it. And, and even even just a kid having, you know, this this innate knowledge of the military, mm. like it, it doesn't have to get to the point where they get to what you were just saying. There's like, oh, I don't know how he knows all this stuff, but he knows it, or even people who are able to kind of retain that stuff without going through the process of learning it. You know, you hear about it once and, oh, I just, you know, I built this model once, so now I know how these things work. Like, maybe there is some of that that glimmer left over from it. Well, uh, this kid knew, knew the guys, like I said, not just name, rank, where he went to school, the name of all of his relatives, the people he served with, the location, because I think at the time they didn't even know where the submarine went down, and then from later looking on, they found the sub. One one of the uh, one of the families that I, I interviewed, it was actually uh, an, there was a, an old I think it was like 2020 or something had done a profile piece on them, like and it was Chris Cuomo who had done the reporting, so it's like way back, you know, we're talking like uh, late 90s, early 2000s, and the the story is told then all that i could think of in my head is you know the recounting this is okay nowadays you could probably just jump on the internet and and get all this information and, and concoct a story like this pretty easily but we're talking about this story coming out at a time when people weren't jumping yeah. on the internet the internet was you know barely a thing and you know, and i know that the internet was around but not like what it is today. like I, I when I lived on my own in like 2003 and four, I couldn't just jump on the internet when I got home. I had to plug it into the phone line, yeah. <laughs> like wait for it to dial up, uh, all that stuff. But or if you were lucky enough to have cable, you know, I, I did have I did have cable internet, but it was not. Yeah, it was no, not fast, and no. I for a long time, even when I like moved out on my own, I was still living off those free AOL discs. Oh god, <laughs> because I didn't want to pay the monthly. Yeah. Then they got wise, and they're like, "Well, you can only use three of these, and then you have to buy this." I was like, "Oh man, well, I guess I'm not using AOL anymore," which was good because that cut the cord because AOL was it's you know you didn't need it. It was it was convenient, but you could remember. You could use I still have a it. Netscape account. You still do Netscape is like, will you hurry up and stop using this so that we can get rid of this server? Uh, but the, the the stories that I've 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 heard about the things that I didn't believe in, they still don't make me believe in them. But at least I I listen to the stories now in a different way, whereas. Even even doing this show, and I felt like you know my role here was always to just let people tell their story, and then then just ask the questions I would think the audience would want to ask. I still felt like if it was something that I thought was BS, that I was looking for my moment to catch them up, 
to, you know, to, to, to catch them on what they were saying. And, and I might never bring it up to them on the show, but I might say to you guys after the show was over, like, hey, I just guys, think that guy's yeah. making it up because of this, 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 and this. Yeah. And I just, I find that now I've shifted and I don't listen to it that way anymore. And I'm, I'm far more open-minded about listening to the story. And then my other approach has also been to say, uh, it doesn't really matter if it's true. To me, it's more like it's entertaining. As long as the, the, the listeners are entertained by it, that's all I can ask because I can't influence them one way or another whether they're going to believe it or not believe it, nor should I. Like, I shouldn't be pushing an agenda of believe or don't believe this guest. It should be up to them to make up their mind. Well, yeah, that's what our forum is supposed to be. I'm not, I, I, I would never be one of these people that's, you know. Aha, gotcha. Not, not even just that either, but, you know, that would come on and say, this guy's got a story that you're not going to believe and then have them on, have them tell the story and then come back and say, so what do you think? Do you believe it? Uh, you know, I'll tell you what, uh, this, 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 and this. My producer was checking on it during the show and said that this was incorrect. You know what I mean? Like, that's just... I don't like that. Like, it's it's like, why'd you give that person a platform if you thought that what they were saying wasn't worth hearing? So if, I, I hope I'm making sense with that. No, I got you. Like, that's... I, I go back to one of the worst moments that I've ever heard in radio. And I won't name the names, but... Uh, you know, Rick Pitino was the coach of the Boston Celtics and, and, and they gave him the world to come and be the coach and they pushed out Red Auerbach who built the Celtics dynasty uh, in order to give Pitino what he wanted, which was the title of president of basketball operations. And so they, they this, this is after he'd left the Celtics and everything had blown up and he went back to college and became a hugely successful coach. And these radio hosts were going to have him on for an interview. So it was a sports talk station. So they were going to have him on for an interview. This would be in the 80s? Nope. It was probably early 2000s. No, it would have been late 2000s because I shouldn't say late. That makes it sound way too far. It was it was definitely after he had left the Celtics and oh. gone to Louisville. So probably like 07, 08, 09. And they, they were, you know, hyping up how they were going to have this interview with him. And he comes on, and they're like, oh, Rick Pitino joins us on the line. Hey, Rick. And he says, hello. You ruined the Celtics. And then they hung up on him. And I was like, that is the worst thing that I've ever heard. Because you just basically, A, set that up, but then also insulted your audience that would have actually wanted to listen we, and hear what he would have, have to, say. to say. Yeah. And... You know, not everybody listening agrees with you and not everybody listening cares. There was probably people that were more of a fan of him as a basketball, as a college coach than they were his pro time. So I just looked at that as like, I never want to be the person that is hanging up on Rick Pitino. You know, I want it to be, let the person have their say, make it, make it worth having put them on the air to begin with. And then... Even if even if we want to talk about it on the air, like whether or not we believe what they were saying, it can be done in a respectful way. Where you can say, eh, you know, not all that story checks. I mean, like, I mean, not to go back to it all the time, but, you know, your argument with Commander Sonny Sito, you know, that you pointed out this flaw in the mathematics. You know, those, that's that's fair. That's not an attack. That's not setting somebody up. 
That's, this is just a matter of this is the data. The and, data don't jive with what you're saying. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's all different kinds of ways to look at it. When you, somebody is telling you their story, you know, you could say, well, I just want to let them go and I, I'm not going to interrupt them. That's the way that I like to handle it. I, I, I don't like to jump in unless I need to jump in. If they're in a flow, I let them tell the story. Uh, some people feel the need to to remind the audience that they're there. And that drives me crazy when somebody's, you know, trying to recount these things and they have to jump in and say, so what you're saying is that, you know, you were abducted by an alien. Yeah, that's what I literally just said. So I like, I just feel, I want to hear what they have to say. I want to interrupt it as little as possible, just the same way that they would be explaining it if they just met me on the street mm-hmm. and that they weren't on a radio show because that's when people are the most honest that's when they don't feel like they have to elaborate or exaggerate or, you know, make it seem like um, they have to throw something in there that makes their story stand out more than anybody else. Uh, there's it, it. There's there's been a lot of moments in my paranormal career where I've seen the look, and the look is where somebody makes that change from recounting what actually happened to reliving and, and no no to, to now they're they go from remembering what happened and telling you they go from telling you to feeding you is probably the best way to okay. say it where they're telling you what goes on and then they say and they look at you and they say and then that's when you know the ghost tore all my clothes off like they're just looking for that reaction and then they get themselves kind of pigeonholed into having to elaborate that story. And that's when things start to fall apart. And then, of course, what happens? They come on this show. They tell the story. <laughs> the next time they go on to a podcast or a, or a radio show, that person says, well, I heard that the ghost tore your clothes off. And now they have to tell that story. And then that host might ask a question that, that I didn't ask. And then it becomes, okay, well, those, those are... And then so then they have to add some more details in. And, and it's basically... You know, they say, they say that when you get caught in a lie, you know, uh, you only have to just keep lying more and more until you come clean. And that's what happens when somebody is not telling a truthful story. I like the people who don't get caught in that. It doesn't mean that their doesn't mean that their story is true. There's, there's, there's always that caveat that it could not be true, but at least it gives you some grounding to say, I, I can feel confident in my ability. I can feel confident in my decision to let them have their say. Hmm. That being said, we'll have some wacko on next week as a guest. No, I'm, 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 I'm very proud of the way that we've always handled things. Uh, and I'm very proud of the fact that we do kind of just let people state their case and leave it up to the audience. And, you know, everybody likes to look at art bell, as the best that ever did this. And that's, that's one thing that Art Bell always did is he let, he would ask the questions and if something didn't sound right, he would ask a question about that too, but he also let them have their say. Hmm. I, I think that makes the best type of interview because we're here every weekend or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, the guest isn't. So right. you want to give them the opportunity to share as much as they can. And that's the way we'll keep doing it. And uh, I, I guess 
if we've done it this long, you know, we're not we're not going to change. Sixteen years, heading on seventeen now. We're not huh? going to change our style now. So, uh, you either like it or you don't. And uh, considering you know the numbers have grown over the years, so I think I think we're doing it the right way. Uh, there's a lot of shows where they don't, but. Hey, everybody has their own style and their own way to do it. That will just about do it for tonight's show. Uh, we'll come on back next week. There's also going to be uh, a few weeks coming up later on in this year where we won't have a show because there's a couple of events that we've booked uh, that you can find at SpookySouthCoast.com. But the um, the real, you know, the, the the real kind of important thing for me this year is to get out there and get some of these historic places, get some money pumping back into them. So even if you're not coming out to one of those things, then just go and visit these places on your own. Go follow along with them on Facebook and, and see the different things that are going on and the different events that they're putting on at their places and support them. Help keep these historic places alive because we don't want to lose them. And, uh, you know, we talk about a lot of the businesses and the industries that were hurt by the pandemic. Certainly uh, all of these historical places and heritage museums, they need your help and support. So as the warmer weather is just around the corner, you're looking for a way to spend a Saturday or a Sunday you know, try to make a plan to go out to one of these museums or visit one of these old historic homes and find out more about that history. And then when you find out about them, let us know about them and we can share them with the bigger audience. But that will just about do it for tonight's show. If you missed any portion of this or any of our shows, you can get them all wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to reach out to us at any time during the week, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. Until next time, for Matt and for Stephanie, I'm Tim. Stay spooktacular.